Well, I don't know how much throughout the splintered Church of God today uh, anyone is keeping the Feast of Dedication. We hadn't been until last year, <clears throat> and I don't know of anyone else that does. Perhaps there are individuals or little groups that might, but I, none of the larger groups do at all that I know of. Uh, so why do we? Why did we start? Today, let's see if we can understand more of the meaning of it, why it might be important, and why God would have us do this. After all, <clears throat> what it amounts to was after Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the temple uh, by sacrificing a swine on it, uh, the Maccabees cleansed the temple and took eight days to do it. And why does that impact us today? Why would that be important? That's ancient history. Uh, they took eight days to cleanse it, and then they started using it again. So what's the big deal? Well, part of their understanding of history is that uh, it took eight days to cleanse, but you had to have sanctified or holy oil to burn in the temple. And they only had enough oil that had been properly uh, sanctified for one day. But that oil lasted eight days. Uh, and it took, I think it was eight days to, to sanctify the oil, seven or eight, whatever it was. Uh, so they wouldn't have had oil to use in the temple until that was sanctified. So apparently there was a miracle whereby instead of one day the oil lasted eight days. And maybe God did intervene to put his stamp of approval on a cleansed temple and the importance of it. Let's go first of all to, to John 10. I read this last year. I think I can add a bit to it this year. Uh, John 10, and beginning in verse 22, it says, And it was at Jerusalem the feast of the dedication, and it was winter, and Emmanuel walked in, his, in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now, I had read that many times over the year, and I'm sure that the whole church and the ministry and Herbert Armstrong and everybody had read that. And there's no command there at all. But there are a couple of scriptures that I might quote to you. We're supposed to walk as he walked, and to do as he did. Now, he walked in the temple on Solomon's porch at the Feast of the Dedication. Now, why was he there? He could have been out on the sea coast. He could have been up in the mountains praying. He could have been in his warm house. But he was out on Solomon's porch walking on the Feast of Dedication. Now, that right there should suffice to be enough for us to say, maybe we should do that also, since that's what Christ did. And he set an example that we should follow in his steps and do what he did, as much as we possibly can on this earth. 
Now, that's a little ambiguous. I understand that, and it's making a connection that might not have to be made, although certainly I think it carries some weight. So, let's try to understand more. I think the context here is important. Uh, before, I don't know how closely the preceding passage is to verse 22, but it may have been in that same period of time. He says in verse 10 of John 10, The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. There are those who would do that in the universe. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He goes on to explain that he's the good shepherd and he will give his life for the sheep, which Christ did, gave his life for the sheep. Why did he give his life for the sheep? Because the sheep were all going to die if he did not. Speaking of his people, or mankind as sheep here, all mankind would die because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So he had to give his life for the sheep. And he uses this analogy how a shepherd will be out with the sheep, rain and shine, snow, whatever, to be sure they have food, to be sure they have water, to be sure they're taken care of. And he says, and hireling won't do that. Uh, if the wolf comes or a lion comes or a bear comes, and he feels he's unsafe, he's out of there. Uh, who cares about the sheep? i got to save my life. He says in verse 14, I'm the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. So there's a relationship there between him and those who will be his. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he makes a point. I have sheep which are not of this fold, them also must I bring. And ultimately, they will hear his voice, and there will be one fold and one shepherd. Now, he's saying there, at some point, there will be total unity. Utter and total unity. And I'm not talking just about the church. We're talking about the universe. It has to be totally unified. One fold, one shepherd. Now, does that remind you of anything we've been reading over and over and over again in Ezekiel? And they shall know that I am the Eternal. There is only one shepherd throughout eternity. So he is explaining who he is. He says, My Father loves me, and I lay down my life that I might take it again, showing it's not just a simple uh, shepherd analogy, but his Father and he had a plan and a purpose to help bring total unity everywhere and no disunity anywhere. He said he laid down his life of himself, and he could lay it down and take it up again through the Father, because his father had told him so and gave him that instruction or commandment. 
Now, there was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. Now, what does that tell you? He says there's got to be total unity. And what he said, as the true shepherd, caused division among the Jews. So he's saying there's got to be unity, and they immediately began to fight and argue. Isn't that interesting? You say the things of God, and it causes people to fight. And there was God himself saying the things of God, and it caused them to fight. Now, do we have a problem here? Christ says we're going to have unity, and immediately a fight broke out. So, there's not a problem being solved here, is there? Many of them said, he has a devil and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Referring to some miracles that he had done. So they were sharply divided. So then it is immediately introduced that he was on Solomon's porch during the feast of the dedication. Now, that's where he was. Okay? Then came the Jews round about him. So, on the porch of Solomon, he was there, the Jews came. Whether the previous context was immediately prior to this, I do not know. But God caused it to be put in here just before, or introducing him being on Solomon's porch. Let's see what the content of, or what was discussed then on Solomon's porch during the days of dedication. The Jews came round about him and said to him, How long do you make us to doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now the argument just before this was, He is, He ain't. Here, they address him directly. Are you or are you not? (laughs) And they shall know that I am the Eternal. Quoting from Ezekiel again. So that's the question that is posed. Are you or are you not? Who are you? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. So he answered them, I told you, and you believed it not. (laughs) You need me to tell you again? I already told you. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now that makes it sound like what preceded his walk on the porch. The analogy of the sheep and the shepherd is tied together here. Because they they had that recently in their memory. So he says, the ones that know who I am, follow me, and others don't. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. No one can take mine away from me. Now he promises in Revelation 20 that they'll have no more fear, no more pain, no more trouble, no more fighting, total unity in the kingdom of God. So he's referring to that, to these unrighteous carnal scoundrels. 
My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. His are his Father's. He says, we're one. So then the Jews, after having been told plainly like they asked, grabbed some rocks and began to try to stone him. And he said, many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of those works do you stone? <laughs> Why are you throwing rocks? What, what did I do that was good that you, you're stoning me for? For a good work, we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, and because that you being a man, make yourself God. And then he explains that God told them in the Old Testament, according to your law, you are God's. Uh, the scripture can't be broken. So, what, what, what is it in the Old Testament that you don't believe? So he goes on to explain that he is God, and God's word cannot be broken, and all he's doing is referring to it. But they would not believe it. Now, if you look at the Bible and prophecy, when God begins to show his hand and to let them know that he is the eternal, what is their reaction going to be? What is going to be the reaction of the two that he sends to proclaim that he is God? They're going to hate them, despise them. They're going to say, no, Satan is God, or a robot, artificial intelligence, or whatever the image of the beast turns out to be. And the God you're talking about isn't God. So it'll be total rebellion. And then they'll kill them at the end. So they won't accept what God tells them at the end any more than they accepted what Christ himself told them at that time. Now, I find it interesting that both these discussions may have been either just before or on Solomon's porch. There's not a whole lot said about Solomon's porch, is there? Well, let's look at a couple. Uh, Acts 3. We might begin to discern a little bit about why Christ was there during the Feast of Dedication on Solomon's porch. Uh, this is right after the Holy Spirit was given. There were great miracles being done. Uh, Peter and John in verse chapter 3 went up to the temple, being the hour of prayer, and this lame man was healed. Uh, and then, down in verse 11, And as the lame man which was healed said, held Peter and John, uh, he gave them a big hug, I guess, all the people ran together to them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. So they had picked Solomon's porch to be there and to have people come to be healed. So Solomon's porch begins to take on a little significance here, and we might begin to understand why that's the part of the temple. He could have been out on the temple ground somewhere, but he was on Solomon's porch. Verse uh, 12, And when Peter saw it, he answered to the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness, we have made this man to walk. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his Son, whom they rejected, 
whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the Prince of Life. That's the same message Christ gave them when he was on Solomon's porch. Isn't it? I came here to create a miracle that everyone might have total unity. I am the Son of God. And then they come to him on Solomon's porch and the same old question, who is God? And Peter says, you killed him. They would not accept who was God. We're going to see that that has been a pretty continual problem. Now let's go to Acts 5. Acts 5 is when Ananias and Sapphira denied that the apostles were the apostles of God and decided not to do what the apostles told them they should do. Now, there was not total unity there, was there? Most of the people sold what they had and put it in the pot so that all might could eat and not starve to death. It was a very... uh, minor and very short period of communism, if you will, all things in common. It's not God's way of living or ruling, but for an emergency, they had all things in common, and they were not in total unity because Ananias and Sapphira decided they'd keep back some of it instead of turning it all in, and they were struck dead on the spot. Now, notice in verse 11, Great fear came on all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Now, Christ had given that power to the apostles. And when the people did not follow what the apostles said, they were killed. Those were times of great drama. Great drama in terms of healing and obeying God and great drama in terms of not obeying God. We saw a bit of that with Moses where dramatic things were happening, Red Sea parting, this kind of thing going on, and Korah and others turned against Moses, and the ground swallowed them up. God was trying to show that he was working through Moses. And then he was trying to show that he was working through the apostles. And some people died to make the point. We're going to have dramatic events like that happen again because we're entering a period of great drama here at the end time. More dramatic things than happened at the Red Sea are going to happen. God has told us that in the prophecies. So when this happened, great fear came upon the church. They might have begun to get the point a little bit here. Anyway, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders worked among the people, and they are all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So we saw healings there in chapter 3, and here we see healings there in chapter 5. Now let's read on a bit. And of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. So the apostles and those who were converted members at that point were all together on Solomon's porch, And none of the people around dared go there. They knew about Ananias and Sapphira. The people in the church were afraid, 
And the people outside the church were really scared and wouldn't even go up on the porch. But they magnified the apostles because they'd seen what had just happened. And believers were the more added to the eternal, multitudes both of men and women. So they began to get the picture that Christ really was God. They will know that I am the eternal. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick to the streets, uh, into the streets, and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by, by might overshadow some of them. Then came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick people, them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Now, leprosy was common and extant, and that was a cleansing, if you remember some of the Old Testament scriptures about leprosy being cleansed. So, healing is a type of cleansing. Unclean spirits were cast out. There's unclean being removed. If you read James, it says the prayer of faith will heal the sick and the sins will be forgiven. Sins make us unclean. So healing is a cleansing process. So every time we've seen Solomon's ports mentioned, it is a time of cleansing, a time of understanding who God is, now he began to wonder why Christ walked on the Solomon's porch during the feast of cleansing, of dedication. Because the examples here were of unclean people who would not accept God coming to Solomon's porch to be told who God was, to see miracles showing that they came from God. And Peter made that very clear. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No other God not Diana, not anybody else, God. So everything that was done there was to show who God was and His cleansing, His purifying. I think it is very important that He was there and that He showed how important cleansing is. There is a process in place. Satan the devil rebelled against God and he defiled the entire universe. He defiled the very throne of God by taking one-third of the angels who were rebellious to the throne of God and creating war. Now, to that point, there had been total, perfect unity at the throne of God, and throughout the universe. It was in perfection of beauty that God had created. And that war was a mighty war. And apparently, it caused great destruction and havoc and disharmony throughout the universe. I mean, it was a major battle. No battle like that before. So there was no longer unity. The earth, I mean, not, not the earth. Yeah, the earth too, probably. Uh, because Satan had been here. And when it came time for the recreation, there was nothing but water showing. And he brought the land up out of the water. 
but apparently that water had been there a long time and there may have been a creation prior to the creation of man where Satan walked up and down in the beauty of the creation of God. He had been given charge over it. And he defiled it and it was wrecked and ruined. And the fossils that had been on the bottom of the sea were now being poked up out of the uh, sea and became dry land at the creation, that creation. So, great havoc was wreaked. And that disunity, that lack of peace, that fighting still goes on. Satan is loose in the universe, and he still goes before God's throne. I believe he is tolerated there for one reason and one reason only. And that is that God is working a plan which he began with Adam and Eve to cleanse the universe. And Satan disrupted that immediately in the Garden of Eden. And we have had fighting and murder and all kinds of lack of harmony ever since, have we not? Now, Christ came that we might be forgiven of our sins, and yet Satan is allowed to go to God's throne and accuse us of all kinds of sins continually. Now, is that pleasant? Does God enjoy that? Does he just say, come on over, old buddy, Satan, and tell us, tell me, let's, let's have a little gossip. Tell me what's going on down there. Who's sinning? You know, God isn't curious about who's sinning. God knows. Satan doesn't have to tell him who's sinning. But God tolerates it. He tolerates gossip. He tolerates fault accusation. He tolerates true accusation. He tolerates an awful lot of uncleanness, uncleanness and filth at his throne to this very day. Now, Revelation 12 says he's going to be cast down and he'll no longer be allowed to do that. But it's because of you and me that he is even allowed there. You know, God did not have to make us, did he? He had, he and his son who had lived eternally... They had created 24 elders and some beasts and lots of angels. And they could have gotten along just fine with perfect unity and harmony and love throughout all eternity. But not only did he want to repair the universe, he wanted to share the universe. So he created man. And there's an ongoing process to get things back the way they originally were. And there's a lot of work to be done. Now, what do you find throughout the Bible? What's the Bible about? You can go to any part of it. And you can find words like purify, to cleanse, to forgive, to remove sin. That's what it's all about, isn't it? From cover to cover. It starts with beauty, symbolic of the kingdom of God and its unity as it had been. 
And then Satan disrupted it just like he did the throne of God. It's a repeat process. So what did God do? He began a process of cleansing. He cleansed the Garden of Eden of Satan, and he cleansed the Garden in Eden of Eden of those who followed Satan by kicking them out to the east. Because he would not let that garden be defiled anymore. And he put an angel to block them so they could not come back there. It was something that had been perfect, and something that got defiled, and God was not going to go back there and try to clean that garden up. He was going to get those who perpetrated the uncleanness out. Now, is he not going to do that at the end of the age? Those who, the, who through the process of salvation, respond to God, recognize who he is, and become part of his fold will be preserved and never taken away from him and the Father, as he said on Solomon's porch. And those who will not accept who he is and do what he says will be burned up in a lake of fire and will never, ever bother anyone again. What does fire do? It cleanses. Refiner's fire, lake of fire, it purifies. It gets rid of the dross, gets rid of the sin, gets rid of the disharmony and disunity. That is the process that God is going through. And that's what we read about as the total story on Solomon's porch at the Feast of Dedication. In other words, once Antiochus had defiled that temple, it had to be cleaned because God's temple must be clean. Let's go through a few scriptures. See if I start here in the right place. Uh, let's take the word purify. Numbers 19. Numbers 19. And verse 30. That cannot be. Where did I... I wrote that down wrong. Only 22 verses there. I wrote something wrong. Let me look at... Uh, well, this is 19, verse 20. Yeah. It's not that I wrote it down wrong. It's that I'm getting blind. I can't read my writing. Verse 20, But the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation because he has defiled the sanctuary of the eternal. The water of separation has not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. Verse 22, And whatsoever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the soul that touches it shall be unclean until evening. <coughs> now, we could go through a lot of chapters in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 
and show all these ceremonial cleansings and washings and blood sacrifices and all kinds of ceremonies to cleanse the priests, to cleanse the people. It's just full of it. Doesn't that show you what God was thinking? That He put them through all that? He wanted them to be clean. If they would not be clean and purify themselves, they would be stoned. Then He was using stoning instead of burning. At the end, He'll use the fire to burn. But the point is, if you were unclean through some sin that was worthy of death, you got stoned to death and you didn't sin anymore. Well, the whole point was, quit sinning. Don't do that anymore. Let's go to the New Testament, Titus 2. It's easy to overlook it, I guess. All right, Titus 2, verse 14. Speaking of Christ here, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a particular people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority let no man despise you. So Paul is telling uh, Titus here that he is to say adamantly, forcefully, that Christ died that we have our sins removed. And that he is looking for a people who will with zeal do his way. If they would not do his way with zeal, they would be what? Spewed out of his mouth. Destroyed. So he says, that's the message I want you to get across. <laughs> and you do it with exhortation and rebuking if necessary. Straighten them out. We're here to be clean. James 4. Let's see if I can find that one. James 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Eternal, and He shall lift you up. In other words, recognize who God is, draw near to Him, clean up your minds, clean up your bodies, get straightened out. That's the same message we read back in Numbers, wasn't it? Hadn't changed any. Same message. Let's go to Acts 2. 
You probably all know this one. Acts 2 and verse 38. Here he says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Emmanuel, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sin makes you unclean. So we were all unclean. So he tells us to repent. Change. That's all repent means is change. Don't be the way you've been. Be different. That's what overcoming is. He tells us all seven churches of the end time in Revelation 2 and 3. Overcome. That is, quit doing what you're doing. Quit thinking what you're thinking. Overcome that. Christ said, I've overcome the world. That's what you've got to do, is overcome the world around you. What's wrong with the world around us? It's unclean. It's filthy. It's sinful. It's wretched. It's abominable. It's blasphemous. It doesn't recognize who God is. So we're to change all that and be baptized so our sins can be washed away. What does that make us when our sins are washed away? Makes us clean. Got to be clean. Malachi 3. Who may abide the day of His coming? In verse 2. He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they might uh, may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the eternal, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Because he tells us in Isaiah that our prayers had become a stench to him. We were so sinful that the hypocritical, hypocritical prayers were a foul smell instead of a sweet incense. And he says, I'm going to make it that way again. So here he's showing again the process. You've got to heat gold up to about 1,900 degrees, which none of you can stand, in order for it to melt or purify. So he's going to put a lot of heat on us. A refiner's fire is a lot of heat. And fuller's soap, it was like Grandma's lye soap, I think, is very rough and hard to take. And you're going to get scrubbed down with fuller's soap to be cleansed, purified. That's the theme all the way through. Um, let's go back to Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21. Now, I'm going to start down about verse 10, I think it is. If you go to the preceding verses, uh, it's talking about cleansing the priests, but he gets to the high priest down here in verse 10. Oh, wait a minute. 21. 21. I'm, I'm in 20, no wonder. 21 verse 10. 
And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes, neither shall he go into any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or for his mother. If you touched a dead body in the ceremonial law, you were unclean. And the high priest was not to do that even for his father or his mother, because he was supposed to represent total cleanliness, total purity. Now, God never did, despite what we might think or have thought, he never did call Aaron the high priest. Not once. I wonder why. Now, he does talk here about instituting a high priest. And Aaron, in some respects, may have fulfilled that because it was Aaron and his sons, the Levites, who were performing the priesthood. But you might remember a couple of things about Aaron, the golden calf, right after they had been cleansed in the Red Sea, which represented baptism. They had been purged and cleansed of all the sin of Egypt. Egypt represents, in Bible language and prophecy, uh, sin of every kind. And when they went through the Red Sea, the New Testament refers to it as a baptism. I think the Psalms does. Baptism washes away the sin. Now, what did they do immediately on the other side was go back to that which God had just cleansed them of. I hear. God says, what about this people? What am I going to do with them? I bring them through and show them this dramatic thing. And they sing the song of Moses and Miriam. And then they start mumbling and griping immediately. Went through this over and over again. But Aaron made a golden calf. Now, he purified gold, didn't he? Threw it all in the fire, got it all pure, and turned it into an idol against God. So the question was then, who is the eternal? Wasn't it? Is it the one up there talking to Moses and giving the law on the mountain? Or is it this calf down here that was just made out of gold? And all Israel said, it's the calf. It's obvious it's the calf. Let's all get naked and dance and drink. And that's what they did. And they shall know that I am the eternal. We'll begin to understand why Ezekiel said that so many times. Because nobody ever seems to know who the eternal is. It's a lesson that has to apparently be learned over and over and over by every generation. Let's read on down a little bit here. Uh, Verse... uh, uh, 12, neither shall he go out of the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of his God. So God's temple, God's sanctuary, clear back here, was not to be defiled in any way. Now, when Antiochus offered a pig on the altar, that was an utter defilement, as unclean as you can get. For the crown of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the eternal. Now, we are all to be kings and priests, are we not? Revelation 5.10. So this applies to every one of us. We have been anointed with the oil of God. 
by hands laid on us after baptism, we were given the Holy Spirit. Oil is symbolic of that. <coughs> and we then have to be clean and not defile the temple of our body, which is the home and the dwelling place of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now let's think for a moment about all these people we've been reading about who would not accept that and agree with that and commit themselves to being clean. And then look at ourselves and where we went after baptism and all the uncleanness that still exists within our minds and our bodies. Who is the eternal, you might ask yourself. I am the eternal, he says. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or profane or an harlot, these shall not he take, but he should take a virgin of his own people to wife. Neither shall he profane his seed among his people, spread it around and have legitimate babies. For I, the eternal, do sanctify him. Sanctify means set apart, means cleanse, purify. And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, Whoever he be of your seed and their generations that has any blemish, he's not to be in the priesthood and offer bread to God. Uh, he mentions uh, blemish, blind man, flat nose, anything superfluous, broken-footed, broken-handed, crook-backed, dwarf, blemish in his eye, or be scurvy, or scabbed, or has his stones broken. No man that has a blemish, verse 21, of the seed of Aaron the priest shall come near to offer the offerings of the eternal made by fire. He has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. God is ultimately seeking perfection. Total unity in his universe. Now, he understands our frame, and he knows that not one of us is going to reach ultimate perfection and total unity with the Father, the Son, and with each other prior to the resurrection. He knows that. Our ultimate perfection will come in 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> this immortal will be made, or more immortal will be made immortal, and this corruptible made incorruptible, totally cleansed and purified. We cannot have any impurity and be in the kingdom of God. So we wait until our change come. None of the people who have died in the past were totally perfect, right? None who are dying today are totally perfect. We've seen some here that we felt were faithful, true followers of God. Were they totally perfect? None. And if any of us dies, we won't be either, will we? We'll still have imperfections. That's what the change to immortal is all about. Now, we're to overcome. He didn't say in Revelation 2 and 3, we have to be totally perfect to be blessed. He says, if you will overcome, you'll be in my kingdom. Now, you're never supposed to quit overcoming as long as you're human. Now, the goal is total maturity, and that is a word that is better used there when it says, be you perfect, because he knows we can't become perfect in this frame. <laughs> not with this carnal mind. But be mature, he says. Grow up spiritually and be clean. 
So, the priests had to be that. Read Zechariah 3, where it talks about the high priest there, here in the end time, being one pulled out of the fire and cleansed and given clean clothing and a clean robe or hat or, or uh, the dress of the priest. Had to be clean. Well, that is a work. It's not just one man. Everybody who is in the end time work of God has to have clean clothes. Okay? I've quoted Isaiah 58 or 52 many times. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Now, we're all called upon to bear his vessels and to build a temple. Haggai says so very clearly. And we're to bear those vessels. And to do that, we have to qualify by being clean, just like he told the priests and the high priest that if they were going to serve in the temple, they had to be clean in every way. And boy, did he put them through some arduous, onerous sacrifices and cleansings and purifications, women out of the, out of the, clear out of the camp for seven days a month. I mean, it was a tough deal. Everything that was there was tough. As God wanted to get the point across that you don't kill your brother, Cain. You don't defile the garden I put you in and told you to dress and to keep, take care of it. It started there and went right on down through all human history. Christ represents the clean. Adam, the first man, represents the unclean. Now, what does he tell us in the book of Haggai? If we're to be a part of the remnant that comes to build his temple at the end, the main instruction he gives there in Haggai 2 is let the priests make a difference known between the clean and the unclean. And he says, if you touch something unclean, do you become unclean? Yes. And he says, so is this people. It's unclean. It just got spewed out of Christ's mouth. It was so filthy, dirty, detestable, and foul-tasting that he spewed it out. Now get clean, and I'll let you enter into my temple. I'll let you build it. Because now you're clean. Now do we have work to do <laughs> to be of use to God? He lays down the same conditions no matter where you go. Now, let's go to Matthew 24 for a moment. Matthew 24. Here he makes a reference to Daniel. Uh, he's talking about now, he who endures to the end, you've got to be alive and here in order to endure to the end, don't you? So he's talking to this generation that will not pass away till these things happen, this end-time generation. Verse 24, uh, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. Hasn't been done yet. Herbert Armstrong didn't do it. And the end will come. So as soon as the two finish preaching the gospel around the world as a witness, the end will come. Right then, they're killed in the streets of Jerusalem. And three and a half days later, Christ returns. The end comes as soon as they're done. Their final witness 
is not preaching. Their final witness is laying in the streets dead. <laughs> and that witness is embellished or made powerful and dramatic by the fact that God raises them up three and a half days later. And if people ain't believing them up till then, that's going to be quite a dramatic thing that is done to show who God is. They'll have been telling people for 1,260 days, less three and a half, and it won't penetrate. But that's the final lesson, and God himself does that by raising them up. That'll scare their partying to a halt. Still got to be done. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. It's not going to be in a Jewish temple. It's got to be in God's temple. It's got to be the people who come under the two witnesses to rebuild the temple of God in its original place and rebuild Jerusalem, and then the beast, the false prophet, defile that temple once again. So Antiochus defiling it in the past caused it to have to be cleansed. That's what the Feast of Dedication was all about, cleansing the temple after it had been defiled. Now we're going to have an end-time Antiochus, if you go back to Daniel 9, and he says this is going to happen based on what Daniel the prophet said. So he's referring to Daniel as an end-time prophecy that has to happen once more, the temple be defiled. Then he says, when it's defiled, or when you see the armies gathering that are going to come and defile it, you get out of there. Go to Zion. Is where you go. Let him who reads understand. Anybody goes to Peter is going to be in trouble. And then he says that that is the end of time and Christ is going to be returning uh, right after the gospel's preached. Now, let's go to uh, first uh, Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43. Now, the end of Ezekiel, <clears throat> the last eight chapters, are about the temple being rebuilt here in the end time. Uh, this temple has never been built. The uh, dimensions and everything of Solomon's temple were different. Herod's temple was different. And the heavenly temple with the Father and the Son coming at the beginning of the millennium is uh, 1,500 miles square. So it's totally different than this. No one has ever attempted on this earth, the Jews or anybody, to build this temple. They've made models of it trying to figure out what Ezekiel was saying, but it hasn't been built. Now, let's go into chapter 43, uh, down about verse 26. Once this is built, verse 25, Seven days shall you prepare every day a goat for a sin offering, and you shall also prepare a young bullock and a ram out of the flock without blemish. Seven days shall they purge the altar and purify it, and they shall consecrate, that is, pure, uh, purify, dedicate, consecrate themselves. And when these days are expired, 
It shall be that upon the eighth day and so forward, the priest shall make your burnt offerings upon the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, says the Eternal. Now, I find it interesting that they purify for seven days and they begin using it on the eighth day to give offerings to God. Now, does that mean that there will be animal sacrifices reinstituted in this temple that is going to be built? I think it's possible. Not because we need the blood of bulls and goats, because we have the blood of Christ. But as an example to the Gentiles who were still unclean, he may go back to that Old Testament thing that was used to bring them forward and teach them and then give His Holy Spirit later to them once they begin to be converted. That is a possibility. But the point is, this temple, for whatever, that may be symbolic as well. Uh, Whatever is done, it has to be cleansed and made pure so that God and His Spirit can be there and be comfortable there. No sin there. Sanctified. Consecrated. Now, let's expand this a little bit. We saw that the Feast of Dedication was a place that Christ found fit to be on Solomon's porch. And we find in each case where it was used, it was of cleansing, healing, coming to understand who God is. Now, let's go back where I started some of this. God's throne was a pure, clean, perfect place with no sin. And then Satan rebelled and took the angels, defiled God's temple, and it is still, to some degree, defiled, because Satan is still allowed to go back and forth there to accuse us of sin. He will be cast down, and that will stop pretty soon now. But there's an awful lot of destruction in the universe. So, we have what? Seven holy days of God that picture the plan and the purpose of God to do what? Cleanse and purify. Passover's first. Christ died that our sins might be forgiven. Days of unleavened bread follow which means we do our part to get rid of the sin that Christ is willing to forgive, but we have a job of overcoming, growing, and putting sin out. Then Pentecost comes, picturing the engagement of the bride, picturing the coming of the Holy Spirit and the power of God to help us cleanse our minds and bodies in the church, the temple of God. Then after a period of cleansing through the Holy Spirit, the long, hot summer, if you will, Christ returns to His bride to what? Completely cleanse and purify her by transforming her from deceitful, desperately wicked, carnal human flesh to spirit and perfection. Remember what it said about the high priest, and he is the high priest? He was to marry an undefiled virgin of his people. Christ is not going to marry an outsider. 
He tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 not to marry outside the church, that we are to have like kind, just as he told the priests in Leviticus. Not divorced, not unclean in any way. Now, the very fact that we as human beings who have sinned and done all those things that the Bible condemns, all that is washed away and cleansed in the transformation from physical to spirit. She is clean. Completely. Now, even on a spiritual level, Paul recognized that in the church, where all of those who had been sinners in the world came in and were set aside through baptism and cleansed of their sin through the blood of Christ, they were no longer murderers or harlots or adulterers or fornicators or liars or thieves. They were cleansed by the washing of the Word. I was going to turn to that one, but I didn't. doesn't matter. And he, he presented to God the Corinthian church as chaste virgins in Christ. Now, that was as decadent a city as San Francisco or Miami or New York is today, or Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, Paul said those people were clean. They were virgin. He's speaking spiritually. And that's what we are to become now. We're to put the sin away. Washed away by Christ, it no longer exists, right? Whatever sins we've committed and perpetrated in the past no longer exist. We still talk about each other's sins as if they were still there 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago and what you did. Do you realize how defiling and how blasphemous that is? When we talk about each other's sins, it is blasphemy to God. That's what he says in Proverbs. Evil imaginations. Evil accusations. That's Satan's business. That's what he does. That is totally contrary to God and unity and recognizing who God is and having complete unity and peace in the universe. Because talking about people's sins creates hate. It creates dissension. It creates disunity. It creates hurt feelings. It destroys peace. God will not have that in the universe. And you know what it does? When we talk about each other's sins, alleged or true, if they've been forgiven in the blood of Christ, we are defiling the blood of Christ by talking about something which no longer exists. God himself says will never, ever again be mentioned to you. And we are going absolutely contrary to God when we accuse people of sin, when we gossip, when we imagine that they're sinning. We're going contrary to the Word of God, the mind of God, and we're going against eternity. And there will be none of that in the world tomorrow or in the kingdom of God. Because he said on Solomon's porch, I came to bring perfect unity. 
And that's what he will have. So it's blasphemy to accuse something that has been washed away in the blood of Christ. And how do you know? You may have seen somebody do something you thought was sin yesterday. How do you know that it was sin? Circumstantial evidence doesn't do it. And if it was, how do you know that that person didn't immediately say in his heart and mind, Oh my God, what have I done? And ask for forgiveness. And if God forgave it, you bring it up. Who in the hell do you think you are, to put it bluntly? You think you're Satan? He'll bring it up. Satan and hell are tied pretty close together, aren't they? I don't think I cursed. Who in the hell do you think you are if you bring up anybody's sin? Satan goes up there and accuses people of sin. He sees it down here. He causes people to sin as much as he possibly can. And then he runs it up to the Father and the Son. Did you see what so-and-so did down there? Yeah. My son's blood covered it. Go away. So when we accuse or gossip, we need to understand what we're doing. We are blaspheming the very blood of Christ. We're not recognizing who God is. And they shall know that I am the eternal. Now let's follow this on through. We're transformed the beast of trumpets and made incorruptible and perfect. Given a different mind. Not a mind that is deceitful, desperately wicked, and rebellious, and arrogant anymore. But the mind of God, which is uplifting, not down-pulling. Human nature is down-pulling by nature. By nature, the glass is half-empty. God's nature goes way above that, and in His mind, the glass is plumb-full. That's, that's God's way of looking at it. He speaks of those things that are not as if they already were. When he said, you are gods in the Old Testament, he was expressing his opinion of what those carnal, rebellious, lying, thieving, fornicating Israelites would become. God someday. Glass plumb full. That's the way he thinks. He thinks of the future and what he is doing and shall accomplish. Romans 11, all Israel shall be saved. Not every individual, but as the vast bulk of it. God doesn't say, I'm going to save half of them. No, his mind is glass full. That's his mind. That's the way he thinks. You and I aren't there yet. And we won't be completely there until our change comes. And all the uncleanness and filth and blasphemy will be gone. That's what's pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. Then his wife is absolutely clean, absolutely pure, and he marries her, pictured by the Day of Atonement. So far, we're only dealing with the church, right? 144,000 people. Why did God tell the two witnesses to go to the church 
Get it straightened out. Forget the Gentiles for now. They come later. Then later, once the church is cleansed and purified, the temple is operable, then they go to the world and preach to the Gentiles. So what God is doing is He's working first with spiritual Israel. Then He's going to begin to work with physical Israel. Then He is going to begin to work with the Gentiles. In the millennium. Those who survive the Holocaust and the cleansing and purging that is going to go on there are going to say, oh, you must be God. I think I better do what you say. And then things will begin to change and peace will begin to come. So the Feast of Tabernacles then is about the peace that will come during the millennium. But the earth is still not purged. Let's go very quickly to Revelation 21. I'm about done. He talks about his bride coming down in chapter 20. And then... uh, Verse uh, 22 of 21, he's describing the bride and the heavenly Jerusalem in the first part of this chapter. I saw no temple therein, verse 22, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. You know what? It's clean. It's pure. And it's full of what? Light. Feast of Dedication was to cleanse and purify the temple and to bring light. And God may have even performed a miracle there of causing one day's worth of oil to last for eight days. So it's a feast of lights as well as dedication. The light of God by miracle. Here you have the Father and the Son as the temple, and it is light pure light, day and night. The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. It will be light all the time. No darkness. Satan represents darkness. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The 144,000. There will still be evil people on the earth, but they will not be allowed in that temple, in that kingdom, in that city. If you're not pure, if you're not clean, you don't go there. There will still be people alive during the millennium. Now, the millennium is the seventh holy day, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is the seventh. Now, there's tacked on what? An eighth. An eighth. All those people from Adam on down who never had a chance are going to be brought back to physical life And they're going to have an opportunity to grow and to overcome and accept who God is, accept Him as God, and then the third resurrection will occur. And all those from all ages 
who would not accept God and who would not follow Him are going to be burned up in the lake that burns with fire. And Satan will be bound by then forevermore, never to cause any dissension or accusation or problem or lack of unity in the universe. Now, it turns out that the Feast of Dedication lasted eight days, and it took eight days to cleanse it. Now, he had seven days in Ezekiel 43, and the eighth day uh, they could begin to use it. It is after the eighth day at the end of it that everything in the universe will be healed. If you read on down to chapter 22, out of the throne of God, where there is nothing but light and nothing unclean is allowed, the river comes out to cleanse the nations. So God's, even in the millennium here, cleansing is still the key. God wants this universe restored to the way it was before Satan ever rebelled. And he wants you and me there with him. And all people that have ever lived, he wants there with him. So what he has done is devised a plan, shown in the holy days, of bringing man from their fall in the Garden of Eden, full circle to perfection again, where everything is good and right before Satan rebelled against God and before Satan caused men to rebel against God. There will be no more rebellion. What does it say down here? The kingdom of God. Verse 14. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. Full circle, back to the Garden of Eden, uses the tree of life. And may enter in through the gates into the city. Now the song that the Protestants sing must not have read this. It talks about how the gates are open wide and all who would might enter. Anybody that wanted to come in could come in. You used to sing that song. Beautiful song. Doesn't fit the verse in the Bible. Not everybody's invited in. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. And then he goes on to say that he and the bride are going to offer everyone an opportunity to be cleansed, to be purified, to be dedicated to the true living God, and they will then say, come and enter in once you've been purified and cleansed. So what we're going through is a thing that has been since Adam and Eve, the cleansing process. And it will be accomplished at the end of the great white throne judgment when all that are wicked and will not repent will be burned up, and everyone who accepts God, which will be nearly everybody, will become a part of the kingdom of God and live forever without tears, without suffering, without pain, without gossip, without fornication, without adultery, without murder, without any sin, and live that way forevermore in total and utter unity. And Christ proclaimed that. But the sheep had to be in his fold. So, it started with the New Testament church and continues with it. 
Then it will include all physical Israel who will be converted in the millennium. Then it will be the great white throne judgment, and all who have lived and not had an opportunity will be given that. And God will be a total success, and His glass will be completely full, because all people, all beings who are alive, will know who God is and will follow Him and follow His way of life. And that which would not accept it, or either burned up, or in Satan's case, apparently chained forever, so that there is no communication, there is no knowledge of his existence, he is in darkness forever. What he did was reprehensible and blasphemous to God, and he will pay the ultimate price. And those who followed him from mankind will just simply not exist anymore. That's why he made us human. So if we followed him, we could be upgraded. If we didn't follow him, we could be downgraded. That's what the Feast of Dedication is all about. It's cleansing the universe, the temple of God. So that everything that comes in is just like the Father and the Son, and no sinner will be allowed there. It'll be perfectly clean. And we have a little work to do.